Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Let's, uh, you know, where this is the last of a series that we've been in at Cross Lane called Holy Week, and this is the Easter edition, and I have just so enjoyed the Holy Week series. We've taken every day of the last week of Christ, and we've, we've kind of examined it and seen what has gone on and taken from it what we thought we could apply for, for our life, and today we come to the famous resurrection scene. And today's going to be a little different. It's, a, it's an Easter sermon, but uh, it's going to take a, a look at a, something a little different in the, in the Easter festivities or the Easter happenings of that day. And um, I just hope that you get a blessing from what we're going to talk about and what we're going to see. Um, if you're new to us, just relax. We're going to put everything on the screen for you. And uh, hopefully God speaks to you in a powerful way this morning. I want to start with, with just John chapter 20, verse 1, which is where you would expect me to start on a day like today. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went out to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And then this, this next line just makes me chuckle. Um, every time I see it, I chuckle when I see this. Verse 2, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Now, you have to understand that John is trying to be humble here, is really what he's trying to do. But the way it gets translated in our modern language and the way we read this in modern day, it, it sounds a little different than John meant it. But he's trying to be humble, and he says, uh, she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, you know, this kind of sounds special, doesn't he? I'm sorry, but that just cracks me up every time I see himself refer to himself as the one who, he's already told us in John that, that he's quoted Jesus, that Jesus loves the entire world, but no, he loves John. She came running to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Now, at this point, She's thinking that the body has been stolen. It has not dawned on her that there's been a resurrection. She thinks that the body's been stolen. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple, there he is again, started for the tomb. And Now watch this. Both were running, <laughs> but the other disciple outran Peter. So he's fast, too. He wants you to know he's fast. And reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. So John beats Peter to the tomb. He gets there. He doesn't go inside. He stands outside. He's kind of peeking in. He's not really sure what's going on in there. I love verse 6 because this is kind of, Peter's kind of like me. I think in, in terms of build, Peter was probably like me, kind of, you know, pleasantly chubby. Um, not necessarily super fleet of foot these days. I was once upon a time, could move, but not anymore. And John's already made it clear that Peter's not as fast as he was. Verse six, then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Now, I don't know whether that's because Peter had such a head of steam that he couldn't get himself stopped, or that's just Peter's way. He just kind of barges right on through. But he, he goes right on into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, so what you have is you have this, this, this place where this body has been wrapped with linens, and it looks as though whoever was in that has basically just vaporized, and what what 
the outer linens would have just basically collapsed right where they were. You're like, Brett, why is that important? Well, if, if they were to wrap you or me up like this and then say, okay, try to get out of it, and we were somehow able to get our hands free and wiggle out of it, what you would have left at the end of that exercise is you would have linens all over the place. They wouldn't be neat and tidy. They wouldn't have looked as though someone had just vanished in the middle of them and just, they just collapsed where they were, but that's what they saw when they looked inside this tomb. So now they're getting the first inklings that maybe, just maybe, he has not been stolen, but is it possible that he's still alive? Verse 8, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed, which leads you to believe that at this point, John hadn't believed that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. This is, he's, now he sees and he believes. And there's a striking part of the gospel writing, and if you were to go read Matthew's account, Mark's account, Luke's account, John's account, you read about the resurrection story, but what you see is that while they all talk about the resurrection, there's a considerable amount of real estate in the scriptures that, that talk about what happens on Resurrection Sunday and what happens directly after the resurrection. Um, Jesus is now going to appear to different people. He's going to make at least five appearances on the day of the resurrection and then at least another 10 appearances that we know of before his ascension. I think it's telling us something. I think it shows us the heart of God. Here's a, here's a God who visited this planet for 33 years, talking to people, touching people, reaching out to people, healing people, appearing, interacting, relating, just doing it all. And, and yet, he couldn't help himself. He, he kept doing it. And I think he, he wants us to know that he's willing to show himself to people who are interested in him, to do a work in me and to do a work in you. And here's the message this morning. God is still appearing to people. He just simply cannot help it. He is reaching out to people. Now just as you sit there this morning, think about being Jesus You've gone through this crucifixion, and now you're alive, and no one knows you're alive. Just think about, what, what would you do with that? How much fun could you have if everybody thought you were dead and you're alive? And so the question comes up, who, who would you want to appear to? So let's just formalize that this morning. Who would you want to appear to first after you had been crucified and then you've raised from the dead? Now, my guess is that there would be a different list for you than is the list that, that actually we're going to read about this morning. The first place my mind goes to is I would want to appear to my mom. Because she was there and she saw everything happen. She knows what I've been through. She, she's seen the suffering. She's seen the pain seen the blood, she's watched them drive a spear into my, she's done all of that, and, and she has witnessed the very worst possible way a human being could die, really. And that's the last image she has. So, you know, I, I would, I would want to show up, but to ba basically just say, Mom, I'm okay. I'm okay. And maybe the next one, you're going to hear me say this and think, Brett, you're weird, but some of you think that anyway, so it's all right. But what if you went back to Pilate? What if you went back to Pilate 
you could, if you go read Matthew's account, there's an there's a exchange there between Pilate and Jesus, and Pilate's having all these conversations with different ones, but he has a conversation with his wife, and his wife basically is saying to Pilate, leave this dude alone. This is a good man. You don't want to be in any way caught up in, in, in what's going on. You do not want to be responsible for his death. You need to extract yourself from all this. She actually, at one point, it kind of slips him a note in the middle of all this, uh, you know, this in investigation and they're doing this, these trials. And she basically says, I've had a dream. I've had this vision. This is a good man. You need to just not have anything to do with this. So if I'm Jesus, I think I have to go back to Pilate and say, you should listen to your wife. Which, fellas, this is free advice for you this morning, okay? You want your day to go good? Just listen to your wife. Ladies? Amen, yeah. I've learned in my life, she knows more than me, she can keep me out of trouble, just listen to her, okay? It's just it's that simple. But there's one more that I'd like to go back to. I'd wanna go back to the religious leaders, and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the religious leaders are made up of two groups of people. There's the Pharisees, and there are the Sadducees. And um, some of you will remember how you know what a Sadducee is, they, they, they don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe that, that they don't believe in a physical resurrection. And so that was just a part of their theology and they said there was no resurrection of the dead. So wouldn't it be fun to just show up to that group and say, boo, right? <laughs> just changed your whole theology by showing up, you know? You didn't think it was possible, but here I am, what are you gonna do about it? What's interesting is that this unlikely group of people that Jesus did appear to you know, they share some similarities to us in the things that we go through. I'm hoping this morning that it will be something that you can relate to. Because the first one was not a disciple. It wasn't the church. It wasn't religious people. It wasn't the holy. It was to a woman named Mary. And it shows us that Jesus values everybody. Mary did not enjoy a great reputation in town. She had a past. It just shows us that everybody has value to Jesus, everybody. In our culture, that's not always the case. Some people don't necessarily have the same value that others have in, in the eyes of some. Certain ones are esteemed more highly than others. I, I wanna show you from John's Gospel the three that he highlighted, and the first of those is Mary. It says, verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying now they, she's told you know they've they've they she's showed up they've seen that the tomb is empty she tells these guys hey he's not there they've gone running off now she's going to go you know back to the tomb and and she's outside the tomb and she's crying and she's heartbroken and i pause right now to say this to you in here this morning that in a room this size it's just a statistically not likely, I would say it's a certainty that somebody this morning has gotten up and you've put the smile on your face. Ladies, you may have put your makeup on and put the lipstick on and trying to make it look like everything's okay, and maybe it's not. It's possible that you woke up this morning heartbroken, grieving. It's possible that you're here and you, you know, how are you doing today? I'm fine, but you're not fine. Because you're participating in that exercise that we have in our culture where you ask someone how they're doing and you just expect to hear, oh, I'm good. 
And that's what we do because that's the pleasant thing to do. And a lot of times that's the right thing to do because sometimes you don't know the person well enough and they may not be equipped to handle everything you would unload on them. And sometimes you just wish that there was that someone that you could meet and they'd said, you know, how you doing? And you go, can we just talk? Yeah, come on. And it's possible that somebody has walked in here this morning and you're smiling and you're all fixed up on the outside, but on the inside, you are a mess. It could have something to do with a child. It could have something to do with a marriage. It could have something to do with your health, a job, your finances. It could be any number of things, but something is going on. Mary is outside the tomb and she is crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, in other words, they're drawn to this woman who is crying. Listen to me, when you cry, heaven notices. Now you may not necessarily think so because we can't see that, but heaven notices when you cry. Verse 13, they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around, and now you get the very first appearance, and it wasn't to a disciple. It was to a woman who was crying, heartbroken. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. My job as a pastor takes me to some places where there are heartbroken people. My job takes me to places, I've been in rooms with people who were losing loved ones. And, I, and I, you know, you walk into those situations and there's nothing you can do. To a, to a man who is oriented to help, my whole life is oriented to trying to help somebody. And there are times that I step into a room and I can't help. There's nothing I can do. And I see the grief and I see the pain and I know how hard it is. And I, there's simply nothing I can do, and I've seen it so many times. The Holy Spirit gets drawn into those rooms and drawn to those people, and they say things and they pray prayers that without the Holy Spirit's help, they could never do on their own. And you get this sense, the Holy Spirit is attracted to grieving, heartbroken people. In fact, I would read this to you this morning, Psalm 34. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed. In spirit. He's attracted to it. Jesus could have appeared to anybody he wanted to first. He could have chosen anybody to receive that first encounter. Who did he go to? Someone who was brokenhearted. He is attracted to those who are crushed and broken in spirit. If I just described you, look for him. You might be here and and, and, and think, you know, what do I do? You might be here and think, he's not here. He's here. And if you've come in this morning and you're brokenhearted, the very first appearance to, to, was the appearance to Mary reminds us that Jesus isn't as far away as you think. So look for him. Even today, I promise you, if you will look for Jesus, you will find him because he is here. The second person that got an, uh, an appearance from Jesus was a guy that, even if you're not a solid churchgoer, you're somewhat familiar with him. You've probably heard his name. You've probably even used his name. 
Poor guy, he doubted one time. And forevermore, he would be known as Doubting Thomas. Can you imagine? You do one thing the wrong way, and they never forget it, and they never let you forget it. And so that was Thomas. And he, he forevermore is the idiom for anyone who doubts. Doubting Thomas. Jesus actually appears to the other disciples uh, before he appears to Thomas, but Scripture tells us that Thomas didn't show up, and the reason Thomas didn't show up is because he'd given up on Jesus. He thought the whole thing was over. You know, he, when he saw Jesus, when he heard Jesus had died on a cross, that was it for him. I'm out. This is over. Mission over. He's not who he said he was. I'm out. He actually didn't believe that Jesus had been resurrected. He thought the whole mission had ended, and now he is officially a doubter. And Scripture tells us in the book of John, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Which normally you would think, well, tough luck for him. He should have been there, right? I mean, some of the other disciples, that might have been kind of the attitude they took. We're told in Scripture that the other disciples told him, told him, we have seen the Lord. In other words, dude, we saw him. Where were you? You missed it. And I think that it's, 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 that's actually how doubters feel sometimes. Doubters aren't bad people. If you're here today and you're skeptical, I want you to know that it's okay. We get it. We understand your skepticism and your doubt does not offend us. I want you to know that you're among friends. We welcome you here. Nobody wants to give you grief over where you're standing right now on the resurrection of Jesus. You may think that it's complete nonsense and you're listening to me drone on and on about it and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm here for so-and-so. I'm here trying to be nice, and, but I don't buy any of this. Listen, I get it. You, you probably have really good reason for your skepticism and your doubt. I'm not here to throw stones at that. I think most doubters are thinking to themselves, I just, I don't get it. I don't understand why you're so excited, why you sing these songs, you know? I just don't get you people. And there's something in the mind of a skeptic that says, there's either something wrong with you or there's something wrong with me, but there's something wrong. And Thomas actually draws a line in the sand and he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And here's what I love about this exchange between Jesus and Thomas. Jesus is not turned off by this. If you're here and you're a skeptic, I want you to know we can handle it because Jesus can handle it. Your doubts will not keep Jesus away. Jesus loves Thomas so much that he intentionally goes back just for Thomas. Look at the next verse, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, which makes the next sentence really, really important and vital. <laughs> Peace be with you, right? Because here's what happened. These dudes are in this upper room, and they've got the door locked, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears out of nowhere. Now, that would freak me out. I don't know about you. And he, all of a sudden, you know, they think they're safe. They're behind closed doors. Nothing's going to get to them, and then they turn around, and there's Jesus. So it makes sense that the first thing Jesus would say is, peace be with you. 
I just think that's funny. And then he said to Thomas, really, I spent three years with you? I've taught you, I've I've walked with you, I told you what was going to happen. Really, you saw me on the cross? And I'm here right in front of you? I told you I was going to return and, and, you know, this... Obviously, Thomas, I have resurrected, and that's not enough for you. Man, I just popped through a wall for you. What else do you need me to do? Jesus doesn't say any of that. And I need to talk to the church for just a minute, because sometimes that can be how we treat doubters. Sometimes the attitude that the church has towards someone who's having difficulty believing, or, or sometimes the attitude that the church has towards the atheist or towards the person that just can't seem to get to that place from a faith perspective, sometimes that's how we talk to them. Really? Really, you don't believe? As if they're stupid. Nobody wants to hear that. Jesus doesn't do that. He goes over to Thomas. He says, here you go, buddy. Here you go. Here you go. Here's, here's my hand. He goes to Thomas. He asks the doubter to do something. He says, I'm going to take a step toward you. I need you. Thomas, I need you to take a step too. Okay? you got to meet me on this, which is really all I'm asking you today. I'm not asking you to go all in today, which is something, unless that's something you want to do. I'm just simply asking you if you would take one more step in Jesus' direction. Just one more step from where you are right now. That if you got a sense that, you know, maybe you're here and you're a complete doubter, you don't believe any of it, but, but there's something that says, hey, you, I should, you should at least investigate. You should at least ask some questions. You should at least take one step to, to look into this a little bit. It's all I'm asking. Just take one more step. Verse 27, put your finger here. Jesus says, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. And that was all Thomas needed. Because now he cries out, my Lord and my God. And if the first person Jesus came to was hurting, the second person Jesus came to was doubting. And and I want you to know if you're here and you're a doubter that Jesus isn't bothered by your doubts So reach out to him. Just reach out to him. And now, here's the third one. I think I like the third one the most because it's it's me. Jesus finds a failure. A bad one. A miserable failure. His name was Peter. Peter, the disciple who would go on to become Peter, the apostle, and having, Peter's having a really, really bad weekend, okay? Um, because on Thursday night, he has spoken up in front of all of his friends, and he said to Jesus, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. I'm not afraid. I'll do anything. I'm going to be with you to the end. You can count on me. Everybody heard it. And Jesus said, Peter, buddy, by morning, By the time the rooster crows, you are going to have betrayed me three times. And Peter's response was, never. Lord, I'm going to go with you wherever you go. I will never fail you. But we all know that's exactly what happened to Peter. He failed. 
And Peter's response to his failure is the same thing that people still do today because they think their failures drive Jesus away when the truth is your failures attract Jesus to you. Did you hear that? Your failures attract Jesus to you. Let me read to you from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples, and I love these last two words, and Peter. Now, he could have just said, go tell the disciples. Peter was one of the disciples. That description would have included Peter. She would have known. Just go tell the disciples, but that's not what the, the angel says. He says, go tell the disciples and Peter. He is making sure that Peter knows that he has not disqualified himself, that he's not failed beyond the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Mark's gospel highlights the fact that Jesus knew that he had failed and probably knew the condition of Peter's heart. Can you imagine being Peter? And you have failed that miserably. And he's been crucified. You didn't get a chance to say, I'm sorry. You didn't get a chance to say anything more. And now you find out he's resurrected. Oh my goodness. The guilt. The shame. The disappointment. Disappointment really, what disappointment means, you missed your appointment. Disappointment is the gap between expectation and reality. That's what disappointment is. But God knows everything, so there really can't be that gap when it comes to God, which means that God really, I guess God can't be disappointed. What I'm trying to say is I don't think that you would ever hear God say, well, I didn't see that coming. (laughs) Well, that's a surprise. He already knew it. He already knew what Peter was going to do. And he still appears. And he still appears to you in spite of your failures. In spite of what you've got going on. In spite of whatever guilt and shame that you feel. I love that. He didn't go to Pilate. He didn't go to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He found someone who was crying. He found someone who doubted. And he found a complete and utter failure. There's this really cool story at the end of of John's Gospel. The guys have been out fishing. The disciples have been out fishing. They come up to the shore, and Jesus is there on the shore. And he has prepared breakfast for them. Now just stop and think to yourself for a minute. How cool would it be to roll up on a shore, and there's Jesus, and he's fixed breakfast for you? I mean, that would be awesome. Can you imagine Jesus fixing you breakfast? Anyway, Jesus pulls Peter off to the side after breakfast, and this is what he says to Peter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me? Now, you have to understand, Jesus uses a word here. He uses the word love, and in the Greek language, Greek is a really precise language, very accurate. So much so that they don't just have one word for love, they have four words for the word love in the Greek language. I'm going to give those to you just real quick. The first one is storge, which is a natural, like a parental love. It just comes naturally. You can't explain it to anybody. If you, if you don't, aren't a parent, it's hard to explain what parental love feels like, but that's storge. Then there's eros, which is from which we get the word erotic. It's a romantic, physical love. And then there's phileo, which is a brotherly love, kind of like a friendship love. It's where we get the, the, the word Philadelphia. A phileo is about love, and Delphos is brother, so the city of brotherly love. And then you have agape, unconditional love. And that's the word that Jesus uses. He uses that word, unconditional love, agape. Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. But Peter changed the word. He doesn't use agape, he uses phileo. I have a brotherly love for you. He just, he just can't go there. And that's how failures feel. Failures feel like they just, it's not that they don't love God, they just think that God wouldn't really want to love them that way. They feel like they've let God down, that they've disappointed God, that God could never love someone like me. Peter says, I can love you like a friend, Jesus. Maybe before Thursday I could have even agape loved you. I could have unconditionally loved you. But right now, I can't do that. I guess I really can't. So, so it's just, for me, it's just phileo. And Jesus says, that's okay, I'll still use you. Verse six, uh, 15, the last part, Jesus said, feed my lambs. I'll still use you. Jesus is the only one who, who, even though you've got a past, he looks at you and says, I can still use you. Listen, I am living proof of that. So he tries a second time. Verse 16, again Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Same word, agape, unconditional love, and Peter gives the same response. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Phileo. I brotherly love you. And Jesus says, that's fine. I can still use you. Take care of my sheep. And then watch this. This is huge. Verse 17, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Jesus changes the word that he's using. He changes it to phileo. Jesus comes to where Peter is. He realizes Peter just can't get any further than that, so what Jesus does is he goes out and he meets Peter where he is. If you're here this morning and you're a doubter, you, you, you need to understand Jesus will meet you where you are. If you're here and you're broken, you need to understand Jesus will meet you where you are. If you're here and you are a complete failure, in your mind you just feel like a complete and utter failure, you need to know that Jesus' appearance to Peter reminds us that Jesus isn't giving up on you, so just love him. Just love him. He'll love you back. In spite of your mistakes, in spite of your failures, in spite of every dumb thing you've ever done, I don't care what it was, I don't care who it was with, I don't care how recently it happened, you're like, Brett, you don't know, you, you don't know what I've done. I don't care what you've done. I don't, I don't care what you've done. 
Jesus will appear to you. Jesus will love you. He will take you in. This isn't something that is unique to Resurrection Sunday. This happened at the very beginning of the Bible. After creation, the creation story in the Bible, we come to the fall of man, and Scripture basically says, then the eyes, so they've eaten from the fruit, and Adam and Eve, it says their eyes, the eyes of both of them were opened, which is a loss of innocence. Every parent in the room. So, so what's happened here is, God sets a tree in the garden. It's the, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he says, don't touch it. Up until then, they did not know what evil was. This is the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. When they eat that, their eyes are opened, and they lose their innocence. Every parent in the room understands what I'm talking about right now when I say, when your kids are little, what you're trying to do is keep them as innocent as you can for as long as you can, right? That's why you set certain people off out of bounds. That's why you set certain language out of bounds, certain movies, certain music. You're not allowed to go to certain places. You don't want them to see certain things because you want to keep them innocent. So they had their, their eyes were open. That's a loss of innocence. And they realized they were naked. See, when you don't know what evil is, naked isn't a problem. But once you understand what evil is, now you know naked is a problem. So they had a loss of innocence and they had shame. The two things that happens when we sin. We have a loss of innocence, and we have shame. Guilt is a perfectly natural reaction to sin. So Adam and Eve did what we would do. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And I'm sure God wasn't happy with them, but in my imagination, there's a part of God, like a parent. Have you ever seen your kids do something and try and cover it up? And it's kind of funny, it's kind of cute, like you're like, look at them. Try, they messed up, and they're trying to act like they didn't mess up. I think there's a part of God that's watching them make these, these coverings out of leaves, and he's like, would you, hey, come look, check this out. Look what they're doing. That doesn't stop God. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord. They were hiding. God is the one making noise. They were hurting. They failed. God is the one who showed up for them. God is still making appearances. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Didn't matter to Adam and Eve, they still hid. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Now, do you think God didn't know where they were? God knew exactly where they were. But he's inviting them out. Come out, come out wherever you are. Right? You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to hide yourself from me. Just He's inviting you out of whatever it is that you're hiding behind, whatever failure you've got going on, whatever way you think you've let God down, he's calling you out of that. He accepts you right where you are. So let me say this and I'll close. Not only does the first story of the Bible do this but so does the last story if you go to the other end of the bible you come to the book of revelation jesus appears to john the apostle and this is the last place where you actually see the words of jesus and in revelation chapter 3 verse 20 he says here i am i stand at the door and knock and here's Jesus making another appearance. 
to all of us this time. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, and that's all you have to do, is just open the door. He says, I will come in and I will eat with that person and that person with me. Mercy. And he says, we'll be friends. I tell the people at Cross Lane this all the time, when you, when you eat with someone, it's one of the most intimate things you can do with somebody else is eat with them. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see this morning. God is still making appearances. He's still reaching out to every single one of us. He's reaching, but you got to reach back. You can't just... You can't just hang back. You can't stand there and take no action at all. It makes no sense that a person in need of a Savior would have that Savior reaching for them and the person in need would not reach back. It's like being in a river, moving fast, headed for the falls. And someone's on the bank offering you a hand and you don't reach back? It makes no sense. Listen. It's decision time. And you know. You don't need me to tell you. You don't need anybody else to tell you. You know whether or not you have a right relationship with God. You know. And my question for you is if you look at that and you evaluate and you say, yeah, I need to to do something. Are you seriously going to come and have that invitation extended to you from a Savior who says, I'm here to help you and I want to do nothing more than love you? Are you seriously going to have that that hand extended and just not even take it? You're just going to walk out and and that's it. I got away from it again. Let me ask you this question. How many more chances do you think you have left before you stand before God? Don't wait. Don't put it off. You know if you belong to him or not. And if not, are you really going to walk out of here and say no? I would love to have a conversation with you about that. I will not pressure you. I won't make you do anything that you don't want to do. But I'll try to answer every question you've got. I'm not saying I can't answer every question you've got, but I'll try. Don't let the opportunity pass you by. For the rest of us, can we just acknowledge what a great God we have who would go to a cross for us so that we would never have to worry and we would have the assurance of an eternity with God. Doesn't matter how dark this world gets. Doesn't matter how bad it gets. Doesn't matter what they do to us. Doesn't matter. Our eternity is secure because Jesus Christ went to a cross, died, rose again, showed us that he had victory over death. What do we have to fear? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He is risen. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for being willing to to part with your son to spare us. I give you thanks that Jesus did not do his will in the garden, but that he did your will in the garden. I give you thanks that as bloody and awful and horrible as it sounds and as it must have been, 
that he was crucified. And Father, I give you thanks that you did not leave him in a tomb, but that you raised him from the dead, because that is what energizes me every single day of my life, to get up and live my life for you, because you have showed me that you have taken care of everything. You have covered it all. You are the Lord of the tomb. So as we leave this place, I pray that you would empower us to live a life that is attractive to non-believers. Father, if there is a person in this room this morning who needs a friend to explain Jesus to them, I pray that you would help them get to that friend if they can't find somebody. Lord, I pray that you'd lead them to me. But help them get this taken care of. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.